Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will talk about the JCK show in August, Inauguration Day Jewelry, and the De Beers 1010 Collection. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from my home office in Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online, calling in from my home office in New York City, otherwise known as uh, my bedroom. (laughs) Yeah, you know what, I've been on a bunch of Zooms this week, and everybody, because I'm in this detached garage, I've probably mentioned it before, that, you know, that has a ton of storage and boxes, but I have a backdrop blocking that, and then I have like a little couch in back, and everybody's like, are you in a garage? Yep, it's better than the dining room table. Whenever I see that setup, I'm envious. No, I know. It's spacious and the child is not audible. Oh my goodness. It's the last week of January and I must say I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. I feel like I've been through a year and it's been barely a month. <laughs> yeah, it's it's there's a lot going on. I mean, you know, it's not all the events, which were also extremely exhausting. I mean, we forget about all that stuff. Right. You know, I feel like something about being in this garage day after day. And I know the world shares my pain, you know, just the monotony of living our lives digitally. Yeah, it's a lot. I think also what's interesting is, you know, I've started putting together, we have a Sunday newsletter that comes out every Sunday and looks ahead at the week and what events and stuff is going on. And there's so much, there are so many webinars and conferences and, you know, Instagram live interviews. Oh my God, Um, more than ever. I mean, I don't know if these things always existed or if people have just ramped up their content. It's probably both, but more the latter that, you know, in the absence of us getting together, we just all flood our, our schedules. And, you know, all of that is, is helpful and cool, but holy moly, it's draining. It's frustrating, at least for me, because I like that kind of stuff. You know, this is my job is to learn, right? So I I should be attending all these things, but there's just too much, you know, you can't, I don't have the time. Well, so all this digital overload, we do have a potential break in that, in that we just found out that the JCK show has announced new dates. August, end of August is supposed to end of May, early June. I'm hoping that the vaccine rollout will speed up and we'll all be vaccinated and we'll all be dancing on tables. I keep saying that because I honestly think by the time we are comfortable to get together indoors, that we will be dancing on tables. I will be. You can look for me at the Venetian on any number of tabletops. <laughs> I mean, it's in seven months, so we'll we'll see how it shakes out. But I, from what I read in the news, the plan is to get everybody vaccinated by the summer. So that should give us certainly enough time. And uh, hopefully we'll uh, have a great show. Yeah. Um, I have one prediction for product that will be very strong at JCK come August. And I bet if you really think about it, you'll agree with me. And that's pearls. Number one product category going into 21. And why do you think that is, Rob? I have a guess due to the other big event in the news, which is the uh, new administration coming in and the vice president, Kamala Harris. She loves pearls and she I guess she particularly likes black pearls, if I'm not mistaken. 
yeah, I've seen those. And and of course, during the inauguration, she wore this beautiful necklace by Wilfredo Rosado, a jewelry designer that's been around for many years, but has come back and had a resurgence. Wow, what a great placement. You can't get much more visibility than dressing the Veep on inauguration day. There was a Facebook group all devoted to pearls that had, I guess, popped up in the days before inauguration. Thousands of members all devoted to wearing pearls. I mean, you can't, you know, wish this upon an industry. Certainly the pearl category must be just over the moon. Right. And you think of what Barbara Bush did for pearls. I mean, and she was the first lady but they had the actual vice president. And I think actually Nancy Pelosi is also, also wears pearls a lot too. I think there's a lot of great jewelry stories around this. And not to mention the brilliant youth poet laureate, Amanda Gorman, who spoke at inauguration, was also bedecked in some crazy jewels, not pearls, but she was apparently wearing pieces that had been gifted to her by Oprah, a pair of really interesting hoop earrings by the Greek designer Nikos Koulos, and an incredible caged bird ring, a reference to Maya Angelou, and I know why the caged bird sings, by a designer called Of Rare Origin that does these aviary-type rings. So anyway, a lot of cool attention on jewelry, and what a great way to start the year. And there was also, it actually got a little controversy, but there was a big New York Times article on Biden wearing a Rolex. What was the controversy? I guess the the point the story was making was that past presidents have kind of worn things like, I would say, down-to-earth watches, and he wears a Rolex, so what kind of quote-unquote signal does it send? I mean, I don't, I think it's really hard to parse that kind of thing, especially considering the prior president was not uh, shy about flaunting as well. But he is now known, it is now widely known that President Biden wears a, a Rolex. So, And the date just in particular is known as the statesman watch. I mean, it was the watch that Winston Churchill wore. When you talk to watch experts, they talk about the date just as that quintessential, almost in a way, starter watch because it's it's just such a, in the Rolex pantheon, more basic than your Submariner or your GMT, certainly more available and more, you know, more affordable than those other models that have stratospheric prices on the secondary market. But it's also the watch that your grandfather wore. It's the one that, you know, he wore for decades that when people think about the kind of watches that they grew up with in their families, it's often a date just. There's something dependable and, like I said, upper statesman-like about it. So it, I thought it was really a great choice. And I think Biden, it seems, is known for some of his watch choices. He's wearing, worn an Omega before. Yeah, I'm not one to get fussed about the price points of those. I mean, he is, what, 78 years old, has been in politics since his 20s. For God's sakes, I hope he can buy himself a nice Rolex. It's certainly not the craziest watch he could get. You know, it's not in your face and it's not something he called attention to, certainly. So, Well, so the other news is obviously in January, we're always looking back at the holiday and seeing what does that tell us about business and heading into the new year? What do we know about the state of the industry? So what are you hearing from the holiday reports you've been reading? I think it was an okay holiday. I think people's expectations were all over the map in, in a weird way because First of all, there's no precedent for what we're living through. And a lot of people had pretty good summers. And I think they were hoping that that would kind of continue through the holiday. And to, for some, it did. For some, it was perhaps a little less than they wanted. Just as the scientists predicted, once the weather started to cool, COVID really started to, you know, start really spreading in a huge way. So it became a lot more serious. So I think that was a big issue 
But I think overall, I think it was a decent holiday. I mean, you know, this is the kind of year where you feel just kind of lucky that you're healthy and you're in business and you're staying alive. So I think most people are just kind of happy that they did some business. So it seems like a pretty good holiday. The high end did well. Obviously, online was big as it has been all year. It may not have been as good as perhaps some people hope for. But if you look at where we were last March, I don't think anybody expected to have a holiday like this. So I think we're in much better shape than certainly we could have been. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole year, really, but certainly capped by that holiday. I think retailers worked harder than ever. They had to do a lot of one-on-one -on -one appointments. They had to be creative. A lot of retailers were putting together boxes of jewels to send their best clients in that kind of pick out what you like, keep it, pay for it, send back the rest. And, you know, these are interesting, challenging models to fine tune. You've got to figure out insurance. You've got to figure out deliveries. You've got to process returns in a way that doesn't really slow down the way you operate. So I think retailers were very, very creative and very just busy. I think there's certainly things that are going to be here to stay, like the boxes, perhaps. But definitely, I think curbside pickup is going to be here to stay. I think virtual consultations are something that, you know, if you're an online shopper and you don't get good help, I mean, I think that's something that people are going to expect. Over the holidays, JCK, I do a holiday jewelry commercial focus group, and we showed a bunch of commercials to women in their, in their 20s. And one of the things they said was like, there's a lot of commercials talking about virtual consultations. And one of the things that kept coming up was like, well, this would be good even, you know, without COVID. Like if I'm shopping for something and I have a question, like it'd be great to have it answered very quickly. So I think some of these things are going to be staying with us for a while. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, the second week of the year, actually, I attended a retail innovation virtual conference put on by PSFK, which is a New York-based trend forecasting agency that does incredible research on new and cool ways that retailers are operating, everything from you know, e-commerce to in-store. And there were so many great takeaways from that conference. I mean, I took so many notes. One of the things that emerged is just, you've seen all those deferred payment options. So you sign up with like, I want to say a company like Affirm, contactless payments, Venmo even. You know, I think that retailers who aren't looking into ways to make things, like you say, more convenient, more efficient, more accessible for shoppers, especially at point of final checkout transaction, which is where, you know, you make or break everything. There's a lot of, I think, focus on making that ultimate final transaction super smooth, super easy, especially on a mobile phone. People, you know, at the conference, they also talked a lot about, given that we're all so focused on e-commerce and shopping online, how to translate the excitement and discovery of being in store and shopping, let's say with a friend, into an experiential version of e-commerce. How to make that transaction feel experiential and memorable and not just like a transaction. And I think there's a lot of interesting thinking going on around there. Not easy. You know, you have to employ all kinds of interesting technologies. Maybe that's AR, augmented reality. Maybe that's some sort of co-shopping platform where you and your friends get invites in an email at the same time to go and sort of shop this online store together you know, anything that kind of replicates the way we used to shop in stores and that sense of discovery that you have when you're walking through a store that you often don't have when you're on a website. You're looking for something, you put it in your cart, you buy it, you don't wander. You know, one of the things that I've noticed, one of the things that, that they're talking about in e-commerce is this idea of curation, right? 
And that used to be what jewelry stores did. They said, okay, we're gonna get a bunch of nice pieces and we pick them and you choose among them. And gradually over the years, we kind of got used to this whole idea that the consumer's in charge and the consumer has unlimited variety and can choose whatever he or she wants. So then you get to this situation like on Amazon, where even shopping for like batteries becomes incredibly complicated because you have to wade through all these reviews. You know, at some point it just gets a little overwhelming. Stitch Fix is big on like curation and certainly some of these boxes. That's the idea is that, you know, we give you a limited assortment of choices and you choose from among them. We're kind of getting away from that whole, you know, unlimited choice thing towards companies that are kind of becoming very good at figuring out what their customers want. Yeah. You know, I've always been a big believer in limiting choice because when you have too much choice, you you don't choose. You get stymied by worries that you're, maybe everybody's heard of this study, but there was a supermarket study, you know, about, you know, those free samples of food. In one instance, they had, say, five choices. And there wasn't a lot of traffic. There wasn't a lot of people coming by, but there was some real purchase. You know, people did say, oh, I actually like this one of the five. I'm going to buy it. Versus the other situation where they had like 20 and there was a ton of traffic and a ton of people tasting, but nobody bought. I used to think about it that way when it came to dating, you know, when there was just too much of a, when I was single in New York and there was a huge dating pool and tons of other women vying for this limited selection of men in terms of going on dates, you know, there was just too much choice, you know, don't overwhelm people, narrow it down, give them a, a small selection and they'll, they'll commit. They won't sit there and worry about all the things that the other choices might've had that might be better. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the jewelry district wherever you may listen. And now back to the show. What else are we talking about? Oh, you know, I, I know what I wanted to talk about. And I, I know you're aware of this because we certainly covered it on the site is De Beers came out with a collection called 1010. They worked with Blue Nile. They worked with a collection of 10 designers, all really independent, interesting, cool designers. None of them, I believe, were especially wedding jewelry focused. But they created this collection that's available on Blue Nile, 10 pieces per designer, so very limited, all bridal rings priced between around three dollars and $4,000. And I thought, wow, what a way to address the modern consumer. Because I, you know, I think the diamond industry might not like to hear this at first, but if they really think about it, it, it makes sense and it doesn't necessarily bode poorly for the diamond industry. I think it bodes quite well. Even though people may be spending less on engagement rings, they're looking at them less, less as the end-all be-all of a woman's relationship. Maybe she gets one or two or three engagement rings from the same man over the course of their time together. Maybe she upgrades. I think there's this sense that you can buy a ring when you're 25 and getting engaged that speaks to you. And it's not necessarily the sacred ring that it always has been in the way we look at engagement rings. And I think there's all kinds of reasons to upgrade that, revisit it, swap it out, and spend more. Yeah. 
Was there anything that really struck you from a design standpoint that was really new and different in that collection? Well, yes, there was one ring that was definitely new and different, and it was, I'm going to butcher her name. She's a wonderful Italian designer named Bia Bongiasca. She's really known for these enamel bursts of color, often a neon, but a bright color. I've got a cool ring from her that features a peridot with this purple enamel And the ring she designed for this 1010 collection has this squiggle of white enamel that kind of sits on top of the fairly traditional, I want to say it's an oval stone. And honestly, it's really different. I've never seen anything like that as an engagement ring. Yeah. And I I think also it takes into account that younger consumers are not necessarily flush right now. They're a little strapped as everybody's a little strapped and certainly younger consumers with college loans and everything have always been more strapped than most. So um, it definitely takes into account that, you know, we're dealing with a different kind of budget. And if I'm not mistaken, the origin also played a role in those diamonds, correct? Which is also a little unusual. Yes, that's a key, key point of that collection. So I'm sorry I didn't mention it yet. They're all, all the diamonds are from Botswana. And that's communicated very openly. And, you know, there's a a lot of emphasis on that origin. I think I'll have to read some of the stories because I didn't interview anyone specifically about it. I was really just a consumer of this news coverage like anybody else. But it's just a, a really interesting emphasis and proposition. The fact that it's all on Blue Nile, I actually went on Blue Nile and pretended to, you know, I put a ring in my cart And was really tempted to buy it. It was the piece by Lauren Harwell Godfrey. I was like, can I buy myself an engagement ring right now? I was like, this is a gorgeous ring. I want to just do this. And then I had to stop myself. But it was that nice and that easy. Now that I'm talking about it, I I sort of wonder, you know, you kind of joke when you're single. I certainly did that I was going to, you know, marry myself or marry your best friend. I do wonder if there's this rash of like, I don't have a man in my life or partner, a woman in my life that I want to commit to. So I'm just going to do this for myself. And you see these women buying engagement rings for themselves. I've definitely written about me engagement rings and I care about me and, you know, ring for me. There's certainly been variations of the concept of like, this is a ring for me. It's about, you know, taking care of me and I was very tempted. I must say, I was like, I can defer payments and check it out right now. On the vastly different side of this affordability conversation, I should note that I don't know how many people pay attention to the Paris Couture showings, but there were a number of really incredible high jewelry collections released this week. Boucheron, uh, the ones that really captured my eye were Boucheron and Chanel. And Boucheron did this incredible take on Art Deco. And the most interesting thing that they did was they showed these really incredibly geometric, very contemporary pieces rooted in the aesthetics of the deco movement on men. You know, there were brooches and necklaces and this conversation around the genderlessness. More and more you're seeing these really high jewelry pieces that you've never seen depicted on men. I don't remember if we talked about this on the podcast or not, but, you know, Mickey Moto partnered with Comme de Garcon in 2020 on a collection of pearl strands. And the way they promoted those pearl strands is they had them dressed on men wearing suits and ties and then these pearl necklaces draped right under the knot of the tie. And it was pretty dramatic because you don't see that. And so here we are seeing that now. And I think what it communicates is 
you know, there's just uh, anything goes and that jewelry is fundamentally unisex. The more unisex it is, the more sort of passed down appeal it has. If you're a woman and you've got a box of jewelry and you want to share it with your children, well, go ahead. You know, it doesn't matter if they're boys or girls. Go, go for it. All right. So there you go. We're off to 2021. It's definitely different. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. I have a feeling when we do this podcast, January 2022, we'll uh, definitely be in a different headspace, hopefully. I hope so. I hope it's less apocalyptic. Um, on that cheerful note, <laughs> welcome to 2021. And we won't see you in Tucson in February. We won't see you a lot of places, but we'll see you in Vegas in August. Come see me dance on the tabletops. Can't wait. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.